This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. A referendum on the Indigenous voice to Parliament will be held in the second half of this year, where Australians will have to answer yes or no to a question. Do you support an alteration to the Constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? So far, the National Party have refused to back the voice, with the Greens and the Liberal Party yet to state their final position. Opposition leader Peter Dutton says there just isn't enough detail. I'm waiting for the detail and I've been respectful of the process and I think, uh, as I say, we're all genuinely wanting a better outcome for Indigenous Australians. And we've asked the Prime Minister to put forward that detail. Professor Megan Davis, a cobble-cobble woman, Balnaves Chair for Constitutional Law at the University of New South Wales and one of the government's expert advisors on the referendum process, disagrees. Today, Megan Davis on what we already know about The Voice and the road to referendum. It's Friday, the 20th of January. So, Megan, I want to start with some of the questions being raised in Canberra about The Voice. Attorney General Mark Dreyfus says Dutton is asking a lot of questions that he already knows the answer to. Is that true? Oh, look, I think the framing of this whole thing is a little bit inexplicable in that, you know, there is a process that needs to be undertaken to get to a referendum, and that's the process we're doing now. Um, Albanese has set up a process. He set up a process to get the detail ready for the referendum bill. That's how referendums work. He set up three committees. There's a referendum working group, a referendum engagement group, and a referendum expert group of lawyers. So what Albanese has done is set up a consultation approach where he's consulting with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about the detail. The referendum bill needs to be passed and the referendum bill will contain the amendments, which the groups are working on, and will contain information that will be distributed to the Australian people so that they can have an informed vote. And that bill is expected before Parliament in February, possibly March. So essentially in the next month or so, people who want to hear more will hear more. Yes, people will hear more. The government has agreed on some broad principles about how the voice will work, though. For example, it won't be responsible for rolling out programs in Aboriginal communities. What else? You know, the voice will not have a veto power. That the voice provides advice to the parliament and the government. The voice will be chosen by First Nations people based on the wishes of local communities. The voice is representative of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The voice is community-led, empowering, inclusive, respectful, culturally informed, gender-balanced and includes youth. It's accountable and transparent and that it works alongside existing organisations and traditional structures. So that's that's some of like eight principles that have been put out around, you know, what might the voice look like. How do we come to these eight principles? So we've got three reports that we're looking at. So we've got the Referendum Council report, um, and that comes from 12 dialogues across Australia plus the National Convention 
where, where people said a lot about what they want the voice to look like. There's the Lisa Dodson report, which is a parliamentary committee that was set up to investigate or consider or inquire into the Uluru process and the reforms that came from that. The third report is the co-design report that Morrison and Wyatt set up, um, and that was chaired by Marcy Langton and Tom Calmer. Right, so there's been a lot of talk about this voice co-design report of late. We know that it was delivered to people like Peter Dutton in mid-2021, so they've had it on their desks for more than a year and a half. But what you're saying is that it's really just the latest in a string of reports delivered to governments over many years. Yes, although its terms of reference were, you know, they expressly excluded consideration of a constitutional body and a national voice. So that report is really kind of tailored to the Morrison era policy, but there's really important information in there nonetheless that can be drawn upon. Mm. The idea that the voice is some sort of third chamber of parliament has come up time and time again. And this idea was recently rehashed by Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Price, who says that the voice could upend our whole system of governance. Is there any truth to that? No. So so third chamber or the idea that this uproots Westminster governance is completely and utterly untrue. It is a fabrication. Um, it is misinformation. Um it is utterly consistent with Australia's legal and political system. It was designed to be consistent with Australia's legal and political system. And so a big part of the voice is about creating a culture change in Australian Westminster governance so that they're not consulting us when the bells are ringing and we have no time, but they're actually coming straight to the voice when they're starting the work. So by the time they get to parliament, although by the time they're standing up a policy, all of the work with the voice and communities has been done. Some of the criticism, and I'm thinking here of just enterprise, is that the process that led to some of these design principles that you've spoken about wasn't truly consultative, that it only represents the elites and people in Canberra and things like that. Despite what's been told to the Australian people, there are Indigenous Australians who do not agree with this, who do not know what this means. Minister Burney might be able to take a private jet out into a remote community uh, dripping with Gucci and tell people in the dirt what's good for them, but they are in the dark. Can you talk me through that process? Was it consultative? The dialogue process that led to the Uluru Statement in The Voice was absolutely consultative. In fact, it was more consultative than anything the Australian government has ever done with First Nations peoples. Um, and it was more consultative than anything that was ever done via by our LNP government for the past eight years. Uh, that's a really important point because the people involved in the design and the setup of the dialogues were people um, that have been actively involved in community politics and national politics for many, many decades. Um, and we designed the process in a way that allowed First Nations communities um, to drive the reform. We wanted to ensure it was gender balanced and we also wanted to ensure that elders were respected. So 60% of the dialogues was local elders and traditional owners. And so it was painstakingly designed to ensure that it had a cross-section of our grassroots mob. But in addition to that, one of the key rules was we, we were not to invite people who have a voice. So people who have a voice, politicians like, you know, 
Patrick Dodson, Linda Burney, today people like Jacinta Price or Lydia Thorpe, politicians weren't allowed in the room because they've got a voice. Mm. Yeah, they can, they've got access to media, they get to say whatever they want. It's true that we couldn't consult 100% of the population, but we are a, a culture that is defined by our nations and defined by our gerontocracy. So we are a culture in which the leadership is mostly elders. And so we define it according to what our people are. Peter Dutton and others have argued that we don't need to change the constitution to create a voice to parliament and that Anthony Albanese could just put forward legislation tomorrow if he wanted. Why don't we? Because um, it's a constitutional reform and you need to have the constitutional amendment set up and voted for by the Australian people um, and you introduce legislation after. I mean, this is how the High Court of Australia was set up. There are about 18 provisions in the Australian Constitution that are similar. They are set up and recognised in the Constitution and then set up later by Parliament at a later date. Now, the detail guy coming later is normal. That's, that's how referendums work and I think it's really important. You never put the bricks and mortar of anything in a constitution. That You don't put detail in the constitution. You defer it to Parliament to set that up at a later date. This may be a silly question, but why don't you put detail in the constitution? Is it just that it'll get very big? It'll be a long and detailed constitution. That's exactly part of the the reason. You know, nobody has these huge constitutions with operational manuals put into it. Um, And if you put the operational manual into the constitution, then you have to have a referendum every time you want to change it. Mm. So, I mean, constitutions by and large are the rules of governance. And so this rule of governance is that actually when Australia does its business in relation to law and policy on First Nations people, they've got to be at the table. It's a very simple principle but it has to go into the constitution first to be able to set up the voice. Right. The Uluru Statement from the Heart does ask for a voice that is enshrined in the constitution. What are the practical reasons for this? The constitutional principle needs to be set up because one of the problems of Indigenous affairs is is the creation and abolition and creation and abolition and creation and abolition of Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander representative bodies in, in this country. Mm. The federal government has always needed some entity, some representative entity to talk to when it's doing laws and policies. So they need to know who to go to. And so it's re- been always been a critical part of their relationship with First Nations peoples. The problem is that voice is always subject to the ideology of the day, meaning we're a political football and we're used by politicians and politics to make points, to win elections. So the enshrining of it is really critical um, so that all Australians for all time commit to us being at the table when we're being talked about. Megan, there is just so much confusion and noise around The Voice right now. Where's the cheat sheet? Where can people go for simple, easy-to-understand information? So there's a really good document that is on the UluruStatement.org website that they can find on the homepage that um, pulls together the three reports that it, it's easy to read. So I, I totally understand that Aussies don't want to go to these big, huge reports and try and wade their way through it. I even find it really difficult to read as a constitutional lawyer, but rather this short document sets out for them the commonalities of what a voice looks like Um, drawing from the three post-Uluru reports, 
uh, which is the Referendum Council, which is the Dodson Lisa Parliamentary Report, and also the Langton Calma Report. So people can go there and get a really simple explanation of what the commonalities are and what a voice might look like. And I think that will help bridge the gap between now and when all the details are released very soon. Next, the recycled Liberal Party tactics from the referendum on the Republic and the question of sovereignty. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. If you like keeping up to speed with the day's news, you should subscribe to our free newsletters. They're short and curated, so you don't miss a beat. And there's two of them, Morning Mail and Afternoon Update. Visit our website where you'll be able to subscribe to both newsletters directly from our homepage. Okay, back to the podcast. Mr um, Speaker, the opposition welcomes the statement made last night by the Prime Minister about the government's proposals uh, to put a referendum to the Australian people, inviting them to create a federal republic by the year 2001. So, Megan, some have compared the current Liberal Party approach to The Voice to John Howard's tactics in the lead-up to the failed republic referendum. Do you see parallels there? The Republic referendum 20 years ago and the voice to parliament referendum are really apples and oranges, really, in terms of substance and what, what is going on. But in terms of the public debate, it's, it's, it's a pretty plausible argument that those who seek to propagate a no campaign have looked at Howard's campaign, campaign tactics. The idea that the Australian people should be presented with only one alternative, that is the alternative desired by the present Labor government, is a completely unacceptable way to examine the mood for change now in the Australian community. And are seeking to apply um, those tactics to this time round. How so? Can, can you explain those tactics a tiny bit? So the 1999 tactics was to embroil um, the the whole referendum campaign into a debate about detail. Um, and by talking about detail, it means you're not talking about the fundamental principle, which is should a British family who have inherited a role be the head of state of a modern liberal democracy like Australia. But if you have a referendum to have a republic, You can easily kill that by focusing just on the minutiae of the detail and not about the principle. And that's what happened with the Republic referendum. But one of the big things about the Republic was, you know, one of their key slogans was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But everybody can see that the system is broke when it comes to First Nations people. Everybody can see. And so the status quo just doesn't cut it. There is no argument. There is no plausible argument for the status quo. So as we know, the referendum could happen as early as August and, you know, campaigning is expected to truly kick off for the yes and no side in the next month or so. The government has made it clear they won't be running the yes campaign. They want to leave that up to the community. I I imagine you're going to be an integral part of, of this campaign. Can you tell me what it might look like? So in terms of the yes campaign, I think 
what we know is there's many, many yes campaigns. So there'll be an alliance of yes campaigns. So it's going to require multiple different campaigns who talk to their communities. It's it's a very community-driven reform. So that alliance, um, I guess, will stand up once the referendum bill is put into parliament, then people will start the work of um, a ground campaign, so working in communities, educating Australians, talking about why a yes vote is needed. Um, it'll involve digital campaigns, no doubt. It'll involve multiple ways of engaging the Australian people on on a yes vote. And so this, the, the Yes Alliance will be very much focused on Australian communities, um, on the ground, grassroots engagement to get this across the line. Um, and that's really, I think, the work that the Uluru Dialogues, um, and I'm co-chair of that with Pat Anderson, of all the leadership that came from the Uluru Statement, have worked for over the past five years. For five years we've been working with Australians, talking about Uluru, educating Australians, you know, briefing people, doing speeches, doing activations, you know, a lot of Aboriginal women behind that, I also would have to say. There's a lot of female Aboriginal leadership pushing this and have done quietly for five years. We've run community Zooms every Friday night since Uluru, informing our people, keeping our people informed. Arnie Pat Anderson and I lead those. Mob are always welcome to them. Um, there's been a lot of work to set the groundwork for what is about to occur. On that, I imagine that dialogue and that education is particularly important in really remote and regional areas, for especially Aboriginal communities. Look, Pat and I, when we ran the dialogues, were really cognizant of this, so we worked really carefully with many um, interpreter services, such as the Alice Springs Interpreter Service, because to run the dialogue in Alice Springs, for example, you know, we had about three or four languages before you got to English, um, and we'd go in a week beforehand and work with the interpreters to ensure that the way that I delivered legal lectures and the way people delivered civics education was done in a way that everybody would understand as you may know, we've translated the Uluru Statement into 83 languages in Australia so that all Australians from any language can at least read the Uluru Statement. But for our people, Pat's been leading an Aboriginal um, languages project where she's been getting the statement and information about Uluru translated into the very many, many languages that make up our people right across the country, including the Torres Strait. It's a big piece of work. It's still underway. So concerns around the voice have also been aired by the Greens who are holding out on explicitly supporting the the voice. The Greens First Nation Network has called on the government to guarantee that Aboriginal sovereignty won't be ceded by a voice. Can you break that down a tiny bit, whether you see that as a legitimate concern? No, no, it's not. So um, recognition of voice in the Australian constitution doesn't cede our sovereignty. That's a fact. No one cedes sovereignty except ourselves. You know, it's up to a First Nation to cede sovereignty if they so choose, and that normally happens by way of treaty. So treaty is, a, is, is, is the actual agreement between, I guess, two sovereigns on sovereignty. I suppose I see behind that concern the idea that once there is a voice, people might settle for a voice and that it might delay or diminish any future treaty processes there's treaty processes going on at state and territory level it's not it's not stopping anything the point i'm making there is that treaties are all done in legislation you know they're not some mystical magical document that's going to be done outside of the 
the Australian government and parliamentary system. That's not how treaties work. That's how the Victorian treaty process is proceeding. That's how the South Australian process is proceeding. That's how Queensland's proceeding and Northern Territory's proceeding. Um, they're all creatures of legislation of the parliaments in those states and territories. You know, I've studied most treaties in the world. They're really only done by Canada, New Zealand and the US. They're very complex. I think Mick Dodson, as treaty commissioner, was right. He said the first treaty would probably be 20 years in the Northern Territory if done right. That's how long it's taken in places like Canada. So I think one of the other things that came up in the dialogues is people thought like the opportunity for constitutional reform is on the table because treaty isn't a constitutional matter. It's not, it doesn't go into the constitution. Do we squander this opportunity or we, do we make something of it? And that's what the Uluru Dialogues did. They sequenced the reform as voice treaty truth. I don't think that the work of the voice department or the referendum is delaying treaty. If anything, it'll make treaty more likely to happen and happen in a way that our people and each nation feel supported and they have the resources at hand to do the best job that they can possibly do for their people. Right now, the power imbalance is significant and um, there's not a lot of leverage there at the table for our people to build on. Being in the Constitution is that it's removing us from the realm of politics and ideology so that we're no longer this political football game, but we actually can sit in a space where they've got to take us serious and they can't play political games with us. And until we have that, it's it's hard to turn the ship around in terms of outcomes for our people who need desperately good outcomes. That was Professor Megan Davis, Cobble Cobble Woman and Balneaves Chair for Constitutional Law at the University of New South Wales. If you want to learn more about The Voice, we've linked to Guardian Australia's latest coverage on the Full Story page, including analysis and updates by our Indigenous Affairs editor Lorena Allam and Canberra reporters Paul Karp and Josh Butler. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and Camilla Hannan, who also did the sound design and mix. The executive producer of this episode was Gabrielle Jackson. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates. Thanks for listening.